Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Welcome to the Commonwealth Club. I'm George Hammond, chair of the Humanities Forum, which organized tonight's event. I have with me Frank Falzon, uh, Detective Frank Falzon, and Duffy Jennings, um, a Chronicle, uh, San Francisco Chronicle writer. Um, they've written a book uh, about Detective Falzon's years in the 1970s, 80s, and 90s as a detective here in San Francisco, at a time when lots of unfortunately interesting things were happening. Um, so. Uh, this is uh, one of over a thousand programs that we've done uh, since the pandemic began, but now we're back to having in-person programs. We have a great audience here in San Francisco for this program, uh, in addition to the online audience that we have over YouTube. So tonight we're going to look back on a different period of time in which people actually didn't behave themselves all the time. Uh, I know it's very hard uh, in, in, in this day and age to imagine that that ever happened, um, but, but it was very different, so, um, but recognizably so. So, Detective Falzon, first, thank you very much for joining us at the Commonwealth Club. Thank you for having me. Yeah, and, and, and for telling your story, because uh, these stories don't get told from that point of view that often. And you have a lot of really good things to say about police work. And I think we should start there, and then we'll go to your, to your uh, program and say how you feel about the police. I, I thought you, had, you started with a Paul Harvey quote, which I thought was excellent. And, uh, so why don't you talk about your time as a policeman and how the police feel about the situation? The reason, one of the primary reasons I wrote this book is because I was honored, and I still am honored, to have served as a San Francisco police officer. I recently had uh, a friend, I, I belong to Rotary, the Rotary Club of Novato, and he's, he's an extremely uh, liberal doctor. And he said to me, he says, Frank, are you proud that your two sons went into law enforcement? I said, absolutely not. I wasn't proud. I had sent both my boys to college. I want them to be something better than their father. But they saw something real in the work that I was doing. And both my boys did follow me. The oldest boy, five years in the San Francisco Police Department, and another 25 with the FBI. The younger boy is now a captain uh, with the San Francisco Police Department. And he's everything that a policeman should be. And that's what I told my friend. No, I wasn't proud, but I was very proud of the type of policemen that they were or are because they're the type of policemen you want. They're kind, they're good. We all just witnessed what happened in Memphis. It was absolutely horrifying. But you cannot lower standards to bring in diversity we all agree diversity is what society needs. But how do we get that? It has to be the cream of the crop. You want policemen that have a brain. What you saw in Memphis and pretty much the night of the George Floyd incident, what you saw was ignorance, complete ignorance. That, that's thugs. That's the stuff that we would witness in the ghetto areas when they would attack each other. 
except these guys were wearing uniforms with a badge and a gun. I, I was mortified and ashamed of what those officers did. I hope I answered your question. You sure did. You sure did. And I, I think one of the points that you made at the beginning was that the police, that there's always, you know, bad, bad, say bad apples in every uh, group, but, uh, but that the percentage is even lower than among the clergy. I thought that was quite a statement to me. No, you're so right, George. Some of the, <laughs> and I mean, absolutely finest men I've ever known were the men that wore the badge and stood right next to me. They dedicated their lives. They went out every day and did a job. Were there bad apples? Absolutely. Did we try to clean them out? Yes. Did we get all of them? No. There's always going to be that rogue cop that can't handle it anymore, cracks up, does something weird and dangerous to society. I'm sorry about that. But the men that I work with, I'd go back tomorrow. I was so proud to be part of the team that they represented. Yeah, I think it's something, of course, a lot of people as... as both this area of uh, being a policeman or in the military, it's more specialized and less known by other people. It's kind of harder and harder to understand that experience and especially the, uh, the fear experience. I mean, the, the, the how, how dangerous these jobs are and, and that you still need to have those principles that you follow, obviously. But, but it's, a, it's a lot of pressure uh, on, on the people that are doing it. I... I... I explained tonight to the people here at the Commonwealth Club, I, I didn't realize how stressful my job was until I retired. And I'm dealing, and I'm dealing with it even tonight, uh, vertigo. And I'm sure it's all stress related. Um, I thought I was handling everything because I was the good guy going up against the bully protecting society. Uh, I didn't realize the toll was taken on me until as I got, became an older man and I realize uh, it's taken a toll on me. It certainly has. Yeah. Um, I'm sure the professional football players feel the same way. <laughs> it's, it's a slightly different source of, of, of uh, that pressure, but this certainly affects everybody that does something that's physically demanding, and, and in this case, emotionally demanding as well. It's not only physically demanding, it's, it's probably, I would say, more m mentally demanding because... You have pretty much everybody second-guessing you uh, from your superiors, um, the courts, uh, district attorney's office, uh, victims, suspects. You have to be a little bit above the ordinary person if you're going to be accepted by all these agencies that are looking at you as a homicide investigator. Uh, it was my job to put that case together and then to present it in court, uh, or I should say have the district attorney present it in court. And I would sit there and watch him and I would watch that jury because the evidence I created had to be proven beyond a reasonable doubt and to a moral certainty that I arrested the right person. And you don't want to arrest somebody just to be making an arrest not working homicide. If you want to prove your value as a person, you want to arrest the responsible and prove it to 12 of your peers sitting on a jury. Well, this is a, a crowd-pleasing question. <laughs> so your life 
along with a couple of other big detectives, got turned into movies and became the basis of a lot of other similar things that were going on. And so I think people would like to know, what's, now that you, know, you can turn on television and, and there's like 20 different shows and it's all about detectives and everything, do you have a favorite of all those shows? Or do no, you, not wanna, uh, you not watch them? I, I, no, I do. I watch a lot of crime movies, but I go to the uh, NOIR, N-O-I-R channel, uh -huh. and I watch all the, the old movies from the uh, 50s and 60s when I felt those were real crime stories. I mean, trust me, I realize there were a lot of twists and turns that Hollywood puts into those stories, uh, but I don't watch much of their today's movies. Uh -huh. Okay, we got our answer. <laughs> so, we ha you have some slides and some pictures to show us? Yes, but before I get started yes, into Duffy. that, um, I'd like to tell you the story of how this book came about. People are here saying, these guys have been out of this work for years and years and years. Why did this suddenly, is there this book? And ultimately, behind all the homicides and the headlines, uh, it's a small town San Francisco story, and it's a story about two boys, both born in San Francisco, both raised in the different parts of the city, uh, who have a lot in common and didn't really understand this until just a couple of years ago, even though we cross paths often uh, in our work in the 70s. Uh, we're pretty close in age. Uh, Frank will be 81 in two weeks. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm a little bit younger. I'm, I'm the younger guy at 75. Um, <laughs> So, you know, there's a lot of water under the bridge, but we were both raised, we found, by essentially by single, strong single moms uh, after we each lost our father at a young age uh, under different circumstances. Frank's dad died of cancer when he was nine. Mm -hmm. He became the man of the house. My parents divorced when I was three. I had very little contact with my father after that. But we grew up in this in the city that kind of nurtured young boys at that time. We, we both uh, grew up with a love of baseball and we played until dark on our local sandlots, Frank at Portalot Playground, me down at Funston uh, Playground, uh, later on our high school varsity teams. And we both identified very strongly with our native city. And we both went into careers that reflected that by working for two institutions with the word San Francisco mm -hmm. in their names, the San Francisco <laughs> Police Department and the San Francisco Chronicle. Yeah. Uh, our paths crossed often on the streets of San Francisco. Um, and in the Hall of Justice, as I covered many of the big murder cases that Frank was called upon to investigate, uh, namely the City Hall murders and the zebra killings and Zodiac and some others, we both saw the underbelly of the city in a, in a, in a city gone haywire mm. in, a, in a single decade. I'm talking about the 1970s. My former Chronicle reporter colleague uh, did an Amazon review of our book in which he he noted about this time frame, which was so eloquent. He said it was the best of times. It was, no, forget that. It was the worst of times straight up. <laughs> After the claptrap age of Aquarius creaked on, it gave way to a powerful and long-lasting age of darkness in San Francisco that makes present-day unpleasantness seem like a holiday with umbrella drinks at sunset. <laughs> <laughs> Jerry could write. <laughs> the City Hall assassinations and the White Knight riot that followed the manslaughter verdict, the nightmarish Jim Jones saga whose seeping corporate corruption spread into government and the newspaper itself, the racist black-on-white torture murders, countless anti-war riots, 
the AIDS inferno, the Patty Hearst kidnapping, the Zodiac killings, Huey Newton and the Black Panthers, Angela Davis and the Marin County Courthouse shootout, Altamont and the Rolling Stones, the Indian takeover of Alcatraz, the shot fired by Sarah Jane Moore that nearly took out President Ford in front of the St. Francis Hotel, the Manson family, although that was L.A. It just seemed like the evils of the world had been distilled and focused like a magnifying glass on San Francisco. And this is the time frame in which Frank and I both performed our jobs. Uh, I left the newspaper in 1981 for a front office job with the Giants. Uh, but because people love nothing more than a cold case, I still today, 50 years later, get several emails a year from people convinced they know who the Zodiac Killer is and I need to track this down <laughs> and, and write about it. Um, we, both, uh, we both get contacted frequently by documentary filmmakers. Frank's been in dozens of these. I've been in a number of them who, uh, wanting to do some new, um, new production about a, uh, an old case, mo mostly Zodiac. Um, but it was just that e kind of email about two years ago that led to the two of us sitting here with you tonight. Uh, a British filmmaker had sent an email to a number of people about a new documentary they were working on considering con concerning a vicious home invasion case on Potrero Hill in 1974. Mm. At the time, Frank called it the worst case he'd ever seen. Mm -hmm. um, and we're going to talk about this in a little bit down in our, in our presentation here. But I noticed on the email that, uh, that didn't blind copy the other people address, the, the email address of Frank Falzon. And I thought, geez, I haven't heard that name in decades. <laughs> the last time I honestly remember seeing Frank Falzon was the day of the Dan White verdict, which we both sat in that courtroom on May 21st, 1979. Frank was sitting with the district attorneys. Uh, I was one of two reporters allowed inside the, the uh, bulletproof glass um, uh, to cover the case, uh, probably five feet from Frank. Mm -hmm. um, and of course, we all know what happened, the shocking verdict and the riot that followed. Uh, but I couldn't recall ever having any contact with Frank after that. And that was 1979. So I, I, I sent him an email. I said, hey, how are you? What are you doing? And he wrote back. He said, oh, I'm, I'm in Novato. I'm retired. Um, we then we got on the phone and talked. I told him I'd written a book about my my days at the newspaper. And he said, oh, I'd love to read it. So I sent it to him and he called a few days later and he said, oh, I loved your book. It's so much about the time frame, you know, that, that I remember and, and recognize. And I, of course I said to him, but geez, Frank, why haven't you written a book? I mean, you had all these great cases. And he said, you know, I always wanted to, but I just, I just never found somebody that I could trust to tell my story the right way. So of course, I said, let's talk about that. <laughs> uh, and you're looking at the result. Uh, just a quick cover a little bit about the background. Frank, born in San Francisco, went to St. Ignatius High School, joined the police department in 1964, worked, uh, worked the street patrols out of Northern Station until he was promoted, uh, and some other details until he was promoted to homicide in 1970. Um, he handled some 300 murder cases over his 22 years in homicide and and then retired in 1992. I'm also born in San Francisco. I went to Lowell High School. Uh, I, I joined the Chronicle in 1967 as a copy boy and became a reporter three years later. As I said, I've covered a lot of these cases. Um, my coverage of the Dan White trial was submitted for a Pulitzer Prize. Um, 
until I became a giant, the Giants publicist. So the, re, the result is we, we reconnected. A real partnership was born. I think Frank will, uh, will attest to that. Clearly, you already heard from a man who's, who's a very unique individual and a, and, a, and a very outspoken, opinionated guy. And I thought, this guy can really tell a story. And I said, I can write a story. Let's, let's do this together. And we started on doing it. And the first thing we had to talk about, what's our working title? And I had a couple things in mind. And, I, and Frank's younger son, Dave, came up one day and he said, you know, it's got to be 5 Henry 7. You got to have 5 Henry 7. And I, I'm like, what is that? <laughs> and, um, and they ex explained, 5 Henry 7 was Frank's uh, radio call sign in his, in his uh, patrol car. And when the headquarters were trying to reach him, the five designated the inspector's bureau. Henry was the phonetic word for the H in homicide, and he was number seven in the detail. So his partner was five Henry four, and so on and so on. Um, and I resisted at first, and then I realized this is a real police term, <laughs> and uh, and I, I've been really happy ever since. It's very unique, and everybody now understands. And they don't have inspectors anymore, and they don't use these these kinds of call signs anymore. So there's a little history there. But we, we spent a year and a half working on this book. It came out last summer, uh, and the response has been amazing. We, we started, I can't write 300 murder cases, right? So we said, well, let's do 10%. We, <laughs> I had him pick out. He saved all his records, and he had all of his files. And he's, I said, tell me your top 30. And we, we started there. And then I realized, well, that's war and peace just doing that <laughs> so let's do 10 percent of that or you know or a smaller piece of that and we ended up really focusing on 13 individual cases the most interesting the most unique the most challenging and the most well publicized cases that frank worked on and and we decided to start of course with the most famous case uh and the and the one mo most people know about uh was a uh, a murder uh, that occurred in an Ingleside, I mean, I'm sorry, in a, in a house out by the, by the zoo uh, in, um, in 1985. And Frank, uh, tell us a little bit about the Night Stalker. I, I'd love to get into that, but first I, I would like to say that uh, uh, it's been a, a very memorable for me to reconnect with Duffy and everything he said is spot on. Uh, we hooked up in so many different ways, and it's been a real true pleasure working with the man. Uh, and it's just been a true marriage made in heaven. We, we get along very well. And we wrote a very dynamic book. If you have any interest at all in true crime and how real homicides cases are solved, I highly recommend uh, our book because there's 13 cases in them and each and every case is unique and Jerry Keneally he's a retired San Francisco fireman Jerry uh, wrote a, um, a review on Amazon regarding our book and he says as a fireman I've written I think it was 23 uh, novels made up stories about homicide cases, and detectives. He said, I've never read anything quite like 507. Mm. They walked me right through the Night Stalker case from beginning to end. And I 
Hopefully, I can't capture the whole case. If you're really interested, you have to get the book. <laughs> and I'm not a salesman, <laughs> but that's where it all is. Uh, like Duffy said, we got a call, my partner and I, and we were having a quiet weekend. We were out at uh, Goodman uh, uh, Hardware Store, and I was buying a faucet for a remodel uh, I was doing at home. And my beeper went off, and we're told that we have a, a murder case out at 1620 Eucalyptus, the house that you see depicted on the screen. An intruder had broke into that home uh, late at night, somewhere around 10 o'clock at night, and he used a tire iron to pry open the downstairs window. Once he gained entry, he was into the garage. The couple had already turned out the lights. The house was dark. They were in bed. They were asleep. He sneaks up the inside staircase, goes right into their bedroom, shoots the husband in the head, kills him instantly, shoots the wife, and then sexually assaults her as she's dying. Uh, neighbors here whimpering. They don't know where it was coming from or anything else. So we surmise that she was suffering while he's raping her. That's how sick this man was. We would come out to find out later that this individual was a satanic worshiper. Anything evil, awful, uh, nightmarish that he could think of, he would do to his victims just to satisfy his God, his God being the devil. After he commits this heinous act, he goes into the kitchen, eats their food from, from dinner, uh, drinks their milk, regurgitates onto the floor, goes into the living room and etches into the wall a satanic message to the devil that he's praying to. Um, that's the crime scene that we walk into. I'm not going to give you all the details. Uh, they're just too horrific. Uh, I know you're thinking, you told me enough, and I have. <laughs> um, but that's the start. And right away... As soon as we were alerted, I grabbed the microphone in our police car. I said, headquarters, please have the crime lab, the coroner's office, and the photo lab also respond. These are all on-call teams, all now heading to this house, uh, neatly manicured out in the beautiful area off Slope Boulevard in San Francisco. Uh, what we find out the next morning, my partner, Carl Klotz, got a phone call from a very diligent uh, uh, detective, detective sergeant in the, law, um, in the Glendale Police Department. His name was John Perkins. John Perkins had a case very similar to ours. So he's calling to see if there's any similarities. One of the things in our case that we had were casings, uh, bullet casings left at the crime scene. And those bullet casings had a red primer, pretty unique. And John Perkins tells my partner, Carl Klotz, our murder case down here in Glendale, very similar to yours, the casings had red primer. Well, when Carl hears that, wow, he's excited, tells me. We immediately get tickets. We fly down to Los Angeles. We know no longer this so-called Valley Intruder uh, walk-in killer. That's what this man was 
being called down in the L.A. area. Fifteen murders had occurred down there, all similar to the one I described. We fly down there, and we're gleaming everything we can from the LAPD, from the Los Angeles Sheriff's Department. We work with them for two days, and we took flyers maybe when we shouldn't have, put them in our folder. I wanted to know everything about their cases. The one thing that we left L.A. knowing is over the six-month period of time, they had learned the name, the first name, of the suspect. His name was Rick. Rick was identified when a solo motorcycle cop doing his job stopped Rick in a stolen Toyota and he was talking to him and he asked to see identification. Rick gives him a, a dentist card and on that dentist card, the name Rick, not a last name, just Rick. And as that Solo motorcycle cop is saying, I need to see more ID. The Night Stalker panicked. And he panicked, ran, jumped over a cyclone fence into a park, and he got away. So when we left Los Angeles, we knew they had a first name, Rick. That was it. So one of the keys to break in this case happened fairly quickly. I... I realized that this fellow did not uh, just walk into Mr. Pan's house and commit that murder on eucalyptus. He had to have done other cases. So I went and I pulled a bunch of burglary reports from the last month. I was going to take one month at a time. And at that time, you can't make this stuff up. Two young cops at Northern Station, one of them, my son, sitting Right here, Dan Falzon, a uh, Northern Station officer working with his partner, Marty Kilgariff, they were called out to a hot prowl burglary. Hot prowl meaning people are in the house when a burglar enters to commit his crime. That's a hot prowl burglary. Very serious crime. Danny and his partner made a very, very thorough police report. It so happened... The home belonged to a very prominent dentist and his wife. They were out for the night. They had their daughter and her friends sleeping downstairs. They didn't hear the prowler crawl through the bathroom window. They didn't hear him ransacking the house, packing tons of stolen property into a pillow case. They didn't know that he was looking out the window as the doctor and his wife returned home, as they pulled into the driveway, the Night Stalker's looking at them because the curtains are still pulled back when the crime lab man gets there. He then descends down the stairs, the front stairs, as Mr. and Mrs. Soroyan, the dentist and his wife, are coming up the inside staircase. They will never know how close they came to death the two young girls downstairs, and that dentist and his wife. So he makes his getaway. But that report that my son and his partner, Marty Kilgariff, made was very significant because I soon got a phone call from a sergeant down in Lompoc, California. One of the items my son listed in that burglary case 
was a bracelet. And what the dentist had done, it was a very expensive bracelet, and he etched with a tool his driver's license number on the inside. And that bracelet was turned in by a police informant down in Lompoc. The sergeant that had this information was very reluctant to give up his informant. All he wanted to tell me is that they had the bracelet. I got a little heated. Uh, men in the detail thought I was overreacting. I knew we were onto something solid. Because left at this crime scene on the report that my son handled was also a Toyota tire iron used to pry open the window. Just too many similarities that really this needed to be followed up. So I finally convinced that sergeant down in Lompoc to have his informant call me. The informant says he has the, uh, the bracelet. He got it from his mother-in-law. She lived in the East Bay in San Pablo. And I said, I'm going to need that information. Everything about your mother, name, address, phone number. We, we head out that morning, my partner and I. I looked at another inspector and I said, Mike, come on with me. Uh, this, this is going to be big. And it turned out to be very big. That day, we came up with the name. And it wasn't easy. And there's a lot of ins and outs. Again, it's all in the book, detailed. We came up with the name Richard Ramirez is the Night Stalker. That not only broke our murder case, it broke all 15 cases down in Los Angeles. And uh, he was convicted of all the L.A. cases. And when he was brought back up to San Francisco on his way to San Quentin, I'm putting him in the holding cell. I should say the bailiffs are. And he turns around and looks at me and he grins and he holds up his hand and he had the pentagram with the star inside. And he said, hey, Falzon, you'd like to know about those two old ladies, wouldn't you? And I'm stunned. I didn't even know he knew my name. I said, what two old ladies? He laughed. He says, you know, the two old ladies on Telegraph Hill. And it hit me like a sledgehammer. I said, you're talking about the Caldwell sisters? He goes, ha, ha, ha. That was me, Falzon. That was me. Six months earlier, before the Pan murders, San Francisco had two ladies murdered by the Night Stalker. We'll come to find out later. He also crucified a 10-year-old girl down in the Tenderloin in, in a basement uh, tenement. In the, in the basement down there, he hung her after raping that little 10-year-old girl. This was a sick, demented man. Fortunately for all of us in the room, I can tell you, he's no longer with us. He died in San Quentin from cancer. So <laughs> we open the book with the Night Stalker case. And then we go back to Frank's childhood, uh, growing up where he did, and his childhood friends and his relationship with his father were very moving and meaningful, how important his father was to him. Um, and uh, and then eventually joining the police department. And then we come back into um, his early years in the department at Northern Station. Uh, and uh, at a time when police were under attack in San Francisco and the Bay Area in, in large numbers, uh, 
the underground violence was was um, you know was <laughs> rampaging through the city. Uh, there were attacks on police. Uh, we start with some very interesting cases, as you can see. We call the body in the bay. Another one called the paper bag killer uh, had a, a psychological twist to it. A Chinatown hit that uh, by a man in Chol Su Lee who. Uh, eventually gets his case overturned, but it, there's a, more twists and turns there. And of course, that was made into a very popular movie called True Believer with, uh, with James Woods and Robert Downey Jr. Uh, and, then, uh, and then we move into the late, uh, late part of 1973. Frank and his partner Jack Cleary at that time come upon the second of the zebra murders moments after it happened out by the UC Extension and... Uh, and the, the poor lady victim dies in Frank in, in uh, Jack's arms, but they managed to capture the first of the zebra killers uh, from there. Um, and so we, we, we carry on through the book in some of these early cases. Uh, and then comes the case I mentioned before um, that the documentary company was doing that put us together, uh, a, just an awful, awful home invasion in Petrero Hill in 1974, um, where, um, where a man uh, crawls into a, a young couple's uh, upper bedroom window. Um, uh, Frank and Annette Carlson are their names, and, and uh, he, he bludgeons the Frank, poor Frank to death, ties him to a chair, and then assaults uh, Annette for a number of hours and um, beats her, tortures her, slits her wrists, pours gas all over, sets the house on fire, and leaves. This is an awful crime. Um, Frank's experience talking to Annette in the hospital is probably the most riveting <clears throat> pages that I can think of in the book. Um, do you want to say anything about that, Frank? Yeah, uh, this case, in my mind, it, it has to be the worst case I've ever handled, only because at, in that time I had small children. My wife and I, we just bought a home and we were working on remodeling it, trying to make it uh, the darling house that every young man, every young woman dream of having. And that's exactly what Frank and Annette Carlson were doing. They, they had bought this darling little Victorian on Kansas Street, a few blocks from San Francisco General Hospital. And they were in the process of making this house more beautiful than it was. And both of them were extremely dedicated people. He was downstairs uh, doing the bookkeeping for the place where he worked and his wife went to bed early. Uh, she half asleep and all of a sudden there's a man standing over the, her bed with a knife that had a broken tip. She, of course, screams. Frank downstairs runs up uh, to rescue her only to be confronted with a man with a knife. So Frank says, like probably most men would say, look, don't hurt my wife. Don't hurt me. We'll give you anything you want. He said, I want money. And he marched him downstairs. And then he ordered Annette to tie him into a chair. And she had no ropes or anything. So he cut cords off of lamps. And she tied her husband as best she could to one of the dining room chairs. And then he came and cinched the knots tighter, making sure Frank was not able to move his arms or his legs. 
he's tied to the chair. And then he viciously beat Frank to death. And it was horrific. And I'm not going to detail it because I've already grossed you out with that first case. This was unconscionable what this man did in front of Annette Carlson to her husband, Frank. Frank is now his head totally destroyed. The coroner would testify at the coroner's hearing that Frank's head was more destroyed than suicides from skyscrapers. That's how horrible this man attacked poor Frank Carlson. Annette tells me, she said, I was screaming, but I know nothing was coming out. Frank had been listening to a stereo while he was doing his bookkeeping work. This man turned that stereo up very loud. So Annette knew she was next, but he took her upstairs into the bedroom. And for three hours, anything, anything that would be unconscionable again, he did to Annette for three hours. And he, when she just said, please, just let me die. He had beaten her with a toy rocking chair she had since she was a child. He beat her with a rock inside a towel. She said, please, just let me die. He grabbed her wrist, slit her wrist, poured gasoline around her, poured gasoline around Frank downstairs, climbed out the window. Uh, believe it or not, this, this woman, Annette, near death, somehow crawls out onto that rooftop starts screaming for help loud enough where people heard her came to her rescue fire department gets her off the roof gets her to the hospital homicides called out we don't know what we're walking into no clue whatsoever we got inside that house we could see something terrible terrible had really happened that night and i looked at my partner jack i said jack there's no need that two of us stay here. I'm going over to the hospital to see if the surviving victim could tell me anything. As soon as I walked into that uh, operating area, three nurses came out from a door. And I'll never forget their words. You got to get that bastard. You have to get him and get him quick. This cannot happen again. And I'm looking at him. I have no clue what they're talking about. And then a doctor came out. He says, are you a police inspector? I said, yes, sir, I am. He says, she wants to talk to you. This brave, courageous woman dying. The doctor looked at me. He says, inspector, she's not going to live. He says, but she wants to talk to you. We want you in there. But first, you're going to have to scrub up, put a mask on, a surgical gown, a cap, and we'll take you in there. I got my notepad. I go in there and I couldn't believe what this woman looked like. And all she wants to do is tell me her story because she did not want this man to hurt anybody else. She wanted him caught. So, and, you know, again, it, the story goes on and on. Um, and they do find a, um, a postal worker who lived on the same block by tracing, again, stolen jewelry. Um, and 
they arrest him within a few days of the crime and he goes to trial and he gets convicted um, and sentenced to death uh, that within months of this crime occurring. But this story still goes on today. And the reason is um, Frank Carlson's younger brother and his family who are with us tonight, Eric Carlson and his wife, Wailing and family, every three years have to um, deal with this case because when the California eliminated the death penalty, it ended up converting this guy's sentence from life, uh, I mean, from death to life, but not just life, but life with parole. And he's had 16, 17 parole hearings uh, coming up on number 18 this April. He's been in prison for 49 years, but the Carlson's family... Um, has to continue. They have their own life sentences of having to fight this, this case and try to keep this man in prison. So they've created um, a website, Justice for Frank, meaning Justice for Frank Carlson. Um, and that website gives you information on how you can uh, submit your own uh, letter to the parole board, um, you know, insisting that this, this vicious killer stays in prison. Um, Again, there's three chapters in the book about this whole case, um, and um, it's just it's just horrendous that this family still has to fight this uh, over and over again. Yeah, I thought that was a great part of the book that you that you included that element of it that what what happens when there's parole and and who has to suffer um, at those hearings. And I, I think it was this case that it moved it from annual to at least every three years. Correct. Right. And he had one three years ago, mm-hmm. um, which, uh, which he didn't attend. Uh, but, but now there's another one coming up uh, in a couple of months. And so the, the cycle starts again for the, for the Carlson family. Yep. Uh, so it's been, and Frank has always been there to, to, help, uh, to help with this, to write letters uh, to the parole board to make sure that um, this Angelo Pavajo remains in prison. Um, so I know we're kind of running time-wise. I wanted to just let you know that some of the other cases that we talk about are uh, a Hell's Angel killing with, a, with another little twist to it, mm-hmm. uh, a, a, a new zebra murder uh, out at Ocean Beach after the, the original uh, zebra killers had been convicted at trial and sent to prison, the story of Popeye Jackson, a prisoner's rights activist who was gunned down in his car in, uh, in a street in the Mission District one night which led to the whole, um, uh, whole section about the rise of the, the violent uh, extremist underground, the tribal thumb and some of these other, um, you know, these other underground movements. But then um, it's not always, it's not at all murders. One, uh, one last thing I wanted to share with you, although uh, we're, we do have the city hall thing in a minute, right. but um, I'm not sure how you're... We have to do the city hall thing, yes. Okay. Um, <laughs> Well, then I'll just, if you don't mind, Frank, I'll just summarize. He's on his way. He's off duty on his way to a night class at City, uh, City College uh, one, one evening in February of 1977 when he, when he drives past a, a corner grocery store and his, his sixth sense of police uh, uh, sense picks up the, the uh, outstretched arm of a, of a guy at the front desk of the, 
of the grocery store and he could see that he's holding a gun. So he realizes he has um, he has stumbled onto a, a, an armed robbery in progress in the grocery store. So he pulls over. Uh, he's in civilian clothes. He's in his own car. He doesn't have a radio. Of course, you know, there aren't cell phones. Um, he realizes he's going to have to confront this guy himself. He gets out. He takes cover, waiting for the man to come out. Um, and um, he's, he's there with his badge out in one hand and his gun in the other, to, waiting to tell the man to freeze. When, an, when an, another gentleman gets out of a car and starts walking towards the store, he now realizes that he has to break his cover to stop that guy or else that guy's going to go in the store and he's going to become a hostage or worse. Um, and just as all this is happening, the robber comes out of the store, uh, his arms folded around a bag full of money and his gun in the other hand. And Frank confronts him, uh, frees police. The guy turns around within 10, 15 feet of Frank, fires off two rounds that both miss. Uh, Frank fires back, just grazes him in the shoulder. Um, and the man turns to take off again. Frank takes his position with his own weapon, tells him again to stop. The man turns around, again, not 20 feet away, uh, fires four more times at Frank. All of them missed. Frank fired one shot, and he was the only one to um, survive that shootout that day. Uh, he, was, he was highly honored by the department, named Policeman of the Year. It was a, just a, a very exciting uh, moment maybe more for us who reading it than it was for Frank at the moment, but, uh, but he did, he survived and, uh, and uh, possibly it saved people from, from being. The, the only thing I'd like to add, uh, first of all, one, one correction, you were right. The man fired a total of four shots. Okay. Two, when I f first confronted him, uh, with the gentleman I was trying to rescue, he walked out, fired two shots. Somehow, I think he had a forty-five, and a forty-five is not a very accurate weapon. And he just sprayed bullets, hoping to hit the man with me or myself. Probably thought he was surrounded by cops. He missed, gets into the middle of the street. Uh, I, I have dead aim on him now, and... I'm thinking, do I shoot or not? He didn't leave me any choice. He turned, looked directly at me. No exaggeration. From where I'm sitting to that back wall, that's the distance. I'm looking at him. He's looking at me. And he fired two shots. And I can remember seeing the arc of the 45. A 45 revolver has a kick to it. And it was twilight. And you could see the arc, the flame. And I remember just squeezing off one shot, and he went down. You know, movies, and you always know where your bullet goes. I had no idea. I didn't know if I hit him in the toe or where. Uh, but he's down. I had every right in the world to keep firing. I did, and I walked behind him. I wanted to get away. He was laying down with the gun between his hands, and he kept twitching. And all I remember seeing is the bag and the bag of money had burst open, this money on the street. And then it dawns on me, there's probably a partner in the store with a shotgun. He's going to come out. He's going to level me. 
So I start screaming at the door. How many more are in there? How many more are in there? And the uh, Arab grocer sticks his head out and he says, only one, only one, him. So now I'm totally fixated on that gun that's moving, but he's not bringing it up. And then people come out of their house. I scream, I'm a police officer, badge back in my hand. Please get me help. Please get me help. The cavalry came. I, I was so happy when I saw that police car, red light and siren, shooting down Holloway Avenue towards uh, Ashton Street in the Ingleside District. And all I could ever think up until tonight, including tonight, is all this happened for $279. A man lost his life. I could have lost my life. And that total stranger trying to go buy groceries could have lost his life for $279. Don't ask me to explain it. All I can tell you is the crazy world of a policeman's life. <laughs> and you, you make it clear in your, in your book, too, that although you were, you were an inspector and everything, you, you didn't ever fire your weapon other than that one time, basically. I had fired my weapon one time before, mm -hmm. and it was in the Fillmore on the beat, and I was across the street from a, a, a local bar in the Fillmore. Two guys came out, got into a, a, a scuffle, which drew my partner and I our attention. We're looking across the street. One of them comes out with a gun and shoots the guy. Mm. And uh, <laughs> stupid us, we hollered, hey, police. Now he turns a gun, he shoots across the street and then starts running up towards Fulton, turns and runs down towards uh, Webster Street. My partner and I in pursuit. And it was a miracle. Uh, he turns the corner. I don't know if any of you remember the old pink palace, which was like a fort out in the, the Fillmore district. He's heading towards the pink palace when uniform officers, a dog unit that has the dog in the cage, they come driving down the street. They see a man running with a gun. They stop him. We come around the corner. He throws the gun underneath the police car and we arrest him uh, again. That man up above was on our side, just as he was in arresting Angelo Pavajo in the Frank Carlson case. Sometimes you need the big guy to give you a little support so that you can make your homicide case. <laughs> Frank says in the, in the shootout incident that um, in, the, in the height of it, his, his thought was, dear God, if I'm going to die today, let me take this guy with me. Um, that was his only thought. And, and the fact is his one shot hit that guy right above his eye. He lived for 11 hours. Um, it turned out he was on parole for holding up grocery stores. Um, so, um, just moving on a little bit more that I think the high point of the book, uh, for us was the morning of November 27, 1978. Frank and I were both in our offices, me at the Chronicle, he at the Hall of Justice, when we, we were both told there had been shots fired in the mayor's office, you need to get up there right away. We had the exact same instructions from our bosses. And I got in a car with a photographer, and Frank got in a car with his partner, Herman Clark, and uh, we all raced up to City Hall. And, um, and on the way, he's thinking, if the mayor was shot, it must have been somebody from Jim Jones's group. 
-hmm. because because why? Oh, Jim Jones, if you remember, 10 days prior to the assassination of Moscone and Melk, uh, Jim Jones had killed over 400 people having them drink the Kool-Aid. Mm -hmm. And the newspapers, my friends over at the Chronicle, had written a story about uh, disciples of Jim Jones that had survived and were coming to San Francisco to take out politicians. So, of course, as we're driving up the street uh, trying to get to uh, City Hall, I'm thinking it's one of Jim Jones's disciples. Mm -hmm. And we get to City Hall and uh, we enter uh, and we climb those stairs. And I'll, to this day, uh, you talk about craziness. Uh, when I was first told there's been a shooting in the mayor's office, uh, that's a pretty heavy call. I mean, I've had a pretty interesting career up at that point. But to be told now there's a shooting in the mayor's office, it's, it's, it's overwhelming. And now as I'm running up the stairs at City Hall, I get to the top stair and Jim Molinari, a uh, police sergeant inspector who was uh, the mayor's bar bodyguard, is waiting there at the top of the stairs. And I looked at him. I said, Jim, he says, the mayor's dead, Frank. I said, oh, Jesus. The mayor's dead. I said, do we have any suspects? He said, yes. And I said, who? And he says, Dan White. Wow. You have to know the background. And again, I'm not going to beat it to death. It's all in the book. Dan White and I grew up in Portland Playground. He was there when I was playing baseball. He was shagging baseballs when the big kids were hitting he was four or five years younger than me Dan White was a cop at Northern Station he played on my softball team we won the city championship three years in a row we took an all-star team to South Lake Tahoe the best players I could put together in the San Francisco Police Department the shortstop was Dan White he was like a kid brother uh I'm not making any excuses for what he did. I'm telling you who he was before the horrendous acts that took place. I always thought he was a gentleman. I never heard the man swear. He would open a door for a lady. Uh, I remember the day he walked in the office. He had quit the police department one or two years previous, became a San Francisco fireman. Then one day he walks in the office, comes right over to my desk. I say, hey, Dan, how you doing? So I got good news, Frank. I'm running for supervisor of San Francisco. Our old neighborhood, Frank. The Excelsior and the Visitation Valley area. I'm, I'm running. For, I said, Dan, you're crazy. You don't want to go up there. You're not cut out to be a supervisor. Trust me, Frank. I'm going to take care of our people. Jack Cleary, my partner at the time, was even more emphatic. He says, you're an... He used the F word. You're an effing fool. You don't go up to City Hall. That's not where cops or people like us belong. You're not going to live up there. You're not going to be able to survive. And Dan laughed, shook Jack's hand. He says, trust me, I'm going to knock on every door and I'm going to get elected. 
this, this young man did exactly that. He was elected to the Board of Supervisors. Early on, one of his best friends, uh, that also a newly elected supervisor from the Castro area, was a guy named Harvey Milk. They were buddies. Dan wasn't a racist or a homophobic. One of his best friends, the only, one of the only ones he invited to his first child's baptism was Harvey Milk. But everything over the next year or two dissolved. Distrust set in. Politics being what it is. And I'm not going to say they were conservative politics because there's no such thing in San Francisco. You have liberal politics, more liberal politics, <laughs> and progressive politics. You don't have conservatives. So we, we had no knowledge, my partner or I, so when we took Dan White's confession, I said to him, Dan, I'm aware that you were a former San Francisco police officer. I've given you your Miranda rights. If you want to talk to us at this time, I'd appreciate you telling us in a narrative why you did what you did today, why you killed two people at City Hall. And this man is sobbing, convulsing, and he's explaining why he did what he did. It was all self-serving. It was all poor Dan, poor Dan's family. But it was in a very, very emotional tape. And when that tape was played for the jury during the trial, I think it was six or seven jurors were crying. Uh, and then I think of that jury selection, uh, why Dan White got off with voluntary manslaughter and it was pretty much because anyone that was sympathetic to Melk or Moscone, they excluded themselves because they didn't believe in the death penalty. I cannot serve on a jury that would send a man to the gas chamber. So they, you're excused. So you ended up with, again, not a conservative jury, but more conservative than progressive. And that jury return a verdict, a manslaughter, uh, voluntary manslaughter, two counts. And I remember, I saw Duffy sitting behind me. He knew it was two first-degree murders. I knew it was two first-degree murders. Joe Freitas, the district attorney at the time, walks in, comes through the bulletproof glass, sits down between me, Tom Norman, the prosecutor, and Tom look, uh, looks at me, Joe Freitas says, looks first at Tom, then at me, and he's addressing, addressing his question to me. He says, Frank, what do you think the jury's going to bring in? And I said, well, I've given it so much thought. I think the first one will be voluntary manslaughter because they're going to think he went down there and in the heat of passion, heat of passion lowers the degrees for murder. He was acting in the heat of passion, shot and killed George Moscone. I said, but once he empties his gun, reloads, walks across the hall and goes in and shoot Harvey Milk, that's murder in the first degree. So my thing was voluntary and first degree. Duffy's sitting out there. He was convinced to first degree. Joe Freitas looks at Tom Norman, the prosecutor, and Tom was a little irked at me. He looked at me. And then he looked at Joe and said, Frank has it all wrong.
He says there's going to be two first-degree murder convictions. And we were the so-called experts. Uh, none of us, Duffy, myself, Tom Norman, none of us got it right. So he served six months, I'm sorry, six years, got out, I think, five and a half years. One night I got a call to go see him. And I wanted to talk to him. I want to make sure I didn't miss anything. Oh, my God. I went down to Los Angeles. His parents had sent tickets to the 84 Olympics, some boxing matches, track and field events. And when I got there, first day, nothing. Second day, not much. Third day, I think it was the boxing matches. Afterwards, we're in the courtyard in the Coliseum. And we both had a Coke, hot dog, potato chips. And I looked at him. I said, Dan, I, I want to talk about that day of the shooting. Oh, uh, I don't blame you, Frank. I really lost it. I said, oh, Jesus, Dan, you really did lose it, pal. And I said, city will never be the same. He says, yeah. He says, you can't imagine how bad it was going to be. How bad was it going to be, Dan? He said, I wanted four people that day. I'm stunned. I, I couldn't even, I'm looking at four people. He said, yeah, do you remember all those extra bullets in my pocket? I said, of course I do. He said, I wanted four people. It was 21 bullets. Five shots for four people. And the 21st bullet was for myself. I said, who were the other two people you were going to kill that day? And when he said the names, I was so stunned. My day was over. I got on a plane and flew back to San Francisco, told my story to the DA's office. The two people he wanted to kill, he felt Willie Brown was controlling George Moscone and was pulling the strings. That was his opinion. He also felt and his words, not mine, the most evil woman in the Board of Supervisors at that time was Carol Ruth Silver. I'm sure something horrible happened between those two. I don't know Carol Ruth. If she walked in here, I might recognize her. Probably not. But those were his words. And that's in the book. And to this day, as I sit up here, if Dan White really loved his family really cared about his family because he had a beautiful wife. Her father was a fireman, San Francisco fireman, uh, salt of the earth woman. He had a child. If he really cared about them, why would he commit such horrific acts? Part of the blame, the fire department, their association, police department, their association, and the uh, local community clubs who all said, Dan, you're representing us. You cannot leave the board of supervisor. You got to get your job back. Well, this naive young man was so gullible, he believed he had to get his job back and that he was going to be raked over the coals and destroyed as a person. Stupid. When I had heard in the homicide detail before the shootings that he quit the board of supervisors, I was one happy police inspector. I said to my partner, it was then Herman Clark, I said, Herman, this is great. 
Dan never belonged up there in the first place. Let him become a fireman again or come back in the police department. Cops, firemen were pretty simple people. We have wives or husbands. We have children. We have a home. We have a mortgage. We care about peace, tranquility, and trying to protect and serve the community that's hired us to just to do just that. So this case that you're looking at on the it 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 just lives with me along with the Pavajo case uh, for the rest of my life. And and I think a lot of you can tell from listening to to Frank talk. I hope you can that. When I heard these stories, I said, I, I need to help him tell these stories in a book. Mm. And we end the book circling back to 1985, just two months after the whole Night Stalker thing. Frank is on call once again when he gets a notice that Dan White has, um, has committed suicide mm. in his garage out in the Excelsior district. Uh, we, I think time-wise, we won't need to go through that, but he sort of created his own gas chamber that the jury had kept him out of mm -hmm. uh, for a few years. And so that's, that's the story of Five Henry Seven. Um, thank you both all for your for attention. And we're, uh, Frank and I are happy to answer any questions you have and then we'll be here uh, signing your books uh, afterwards. George? Yeah, well, we, have, we have one question coming in. Just to, you, you mentioned Right at the beginning, Duffy, that, that uh, you, you got emails uh, from people three, four every year about something or other. So the only way that you could have been involved in something more famous than what all, what all the things that you just went through is if you had both worked in Dallas in 1963. <laughs> then yeah. you would have gotten 25 emails a day uh, ever since. And what's interesting is that Frank has heard from already from a couple of people that are in these cases that he locked away mm -hmm. uh, to say they'd read the book and it was accurate. And um, it's, it's, it's amazing. <laughs> yeah. It's just amazing Excellent. the feedback that he's had. Yeah. All right. Well, we have a couple of questions and then we'll, we'll go to the live ones. Um, did you ever have any interaction with the cast or production crew from the streets of San Francisco? <laughs> I'm sorry. Yeah. Did you ever have any interaction with the cast or the production crew from the streets of San Francisco? Well, initially they were using our office on the weekends. This is the streets of San Francisco uh, with uh, Carl Malden and uh, uh, Mike Douglas. And yes, they would be down at the Hall of Justice courtrooms and uh, our office, also in the garage, filming shoots going in and out of the police garage. Uh, so that kind of interaction. But as far as holding conversations with either uh, Carl Malden or Mike Douglas, I never did. We, we also talk in the book about a number of movies that were shot here that Frank and other homicide inspectors served as uh, advisors on, including The Laughing Policeman, uh, Milk, of course, and, and some others. Because San Francisco is a great place for movies. There's a lot of them shot here. Go ahead. Hi, hi there. Um, my initial question was, um, what as citizens can we do? I never knew that um, when you get rid of the death penalty, uh, it automatically um, moves into life with parole. I don't understand that, but I'll definitely look into that. If there's anything as a citizen we can do, that's horrible. Because, mm -hmm. um, I mean, I'm against the death penalty, but I'm all for life in prison with no parole. So I, I didn't know that. So that was my first question, if you think there's anything we can do to... So I'd actually refer that to Frank Carlson's younger brother, Eric, who's here. 
and who's leading this Justice for Frank uh, effort. Yeah, I, I don't want to steal your thunder, guys. You're doing an amazing job, but um, that's a great question. Um, California has always had a very um, complex relationship with the death penalty. Uh, California actually has the death penalty. It, it's not enforced. It's not utilized. And Gavin Newsom recently sort of made a proclamation that henceforth, as long as he's in charge, it's not going to be imposed. Um, but what happened was in 1976, there was a judgment by the U.S. Supreme Court that the death penalty was cruel and unusual punishment. And all the states in America were subjected to this change. And the bureaucratic snafu at the time in the state of California was the next worst sentence was life with parole. There was no life without parole when the death penalty was in place because in the 70s, they were actually executing people. Um, so what happened is once that problem was identified, the legislature very quickly scrambled and put life without parole in place as a punishment. But there were um, 67 individuals, including the Manson family, Sirhan Sirhan, um, the person who murdered my brother. Um, and they got this like upgrade. Um, and no one was in a position to resentence them or, or, or try them again. Um, the population is declining due to attrition. People passed away. There are now 19 people left in the system of the 38,000 people that are incarcerated for murder or being accessories to murder. These 19 individuals have this um, special term and it's impacted my family as a result. And uh, the parole hearing started in 1980 and they happened every year. And um, my mom became a, a, an activist and worked in Sacramento to change the law and was very successful. Um, Frank put her together with some other individuals that felt the same way. And, and they got the law changed in terms of terms and conditions associated with paroles. But um, unfortunately we have to deal with the consequences. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, justiceforfrank.org. Sorry, I don't mean to hog the mic. I have one other quick question. Um, I, can, I, I can almost not say Dan White's name. Very uh, affected my family very deeply. And so my question is, you, you knew his past and the good person that he was to you that you saw. Did that change your perspective on he, Dan White was very lucky and that he was given too lucky in my opinion, but he was given um, a voice. He was people listen to his tapes. That doesn't happen to most people. He got very lucky for many reasons that are not fair, I believe. But did it change your perspective to know here, here's a guy who was a good guy who, whatever you think, um, happened, um, even, you know, and did these bad things, did it give you a different perspective on everybody that you um, looked at in terms of homicide? Because that story could be anyone's story. Your, your, your question is very well taken. And I'm going to tell you the type of policeman I was and the type of policeman I like to believe all my 
fellow man, men were, all the people I associated with, damn white, cop, anybody that crosses that line. He may still be my friend. I still remember all the good things. But I have, to, I have a job to do, and I was going to do it. Friend or no friend, my job came first because that's what the community hired me to do. If I was going to do something different, I should turn my badge and my gun in and say, hands off. But the department let me handle that case because they knew that Dan was like a kin brother. And they were smart enough to know. Frank, because when he was arrested at Northern Station, he told the arresting cops, I'm not talking. He took his Miranda rights. It wasn't until I walked in that interrogation room and he saw somebody that he kind of idolized. I was the big brother. I was the one that took him under my wing, helped him. And that's when emotionally, he's like a, I, I say it was like a pressure cooker with the lid blowing off. And he wanted to tell me the truth. And I, well, you want to tell me the truth? We're going to do it the right way, Dan. I'm getting my tape recorder. And from that, that moment on, everything was on a tape recorder. Here's another question. Hey, guys, just want to say thanks, first of all, for uh, sharing your incredible, incredible story and your life. Um, so what do, you, what do you think about today's current state of the San Francisco Police Department and the the seemingly like lack of morale and the kind of stuff that's going on. How do you see it? All your years of experience and like apparently, you know, hard to you know, get new officers to sign up and seemingly having an effect on the, the state of the city today. Uh, can you rephrase that, please? I, my hearing isn't so good. Sure. Sure. Well, go, go ahead. Yeah. Um, he just wants to, your opinion of the state of the San Francisco Police Department today. Because the, the inspectors and so on, it's hard to get m new officers. Uh, the morale is low. And he, he, uh, he wanted to know if you would contrast well, you, it with the You're asking the wrong guy because I, I, I'll, tell you, I'll tell you the truth. I'm very upset with the direction of the San Francisco Police Department. Because I honestly believe when I left that department, we were heading in the right direction. And unfortunately... I do believe in diversity, 100%. But when you think about diversity in the police department, it had to happen overnight. So it couldn't happen with the current standards. They had to lower standards. You lower standards, you don't know what you're getting. And you saw it very clear in Memphis a few nights ago, what lowering standards cause. You always have to get the cream of the crop when I came in, they said, you'll be the last that will be allowed with two years of college or a high school diploma. From, it's going to be a four-year degree. It's not the way it is today. And sadly, uh, what I see is laws are coming off the books or they're being told, don't enforce these laws. And the police officer, they're not stupid. They're, they're working people. If they know they can go and work eight, eight to five and get a paycheck and do nothing because the city prefers that, yeah, that's what they're going to do. But the one that suffers is that taxpayer. I mean, I, I read the paper, maybe two papers every day because I, I'm so involved in crime and street justice and 
I, I just, I, I realize not everybody deserves prison. Diversion is wonderful. But when you're allowing people that really want to hurt, that are hurting so much inside, they want to hurt others, and you're putting them back out in the street, that, that's, a, that's a mistake. Hi. First of all, thank you, Inspector Falzone and, and Duffy, for coming tonight. This has been really uh, incredible, and you know, thanks to the Commonwealth Club. And, and thank you, uh, Inspector Falzone, for your service, too. Um, thank you. In regards to um, in the Moscone and, uh, and White Murders, Duffy, in your first book, you talked about or you've, you've written about um, a, kind of a very unique interaction you had with uh, then-supervisor um, um, Feinstein, when she had to sort of announce to the press that the mayor and the supervisor had uh, had been assassinated, um, talk about that moment for a little bit because I think it's uh, Diane Feinstein at the time, she was the head of the board of supervisors. Oh, go ahead. I'm sorry. Was you? Um, that's okay. Uh, I know what what you're referring to, and thank you. Um, and this was something I didn't realize for almost a year after that day, but. It was a lot of chaos that day. There was, uh, for the media who didn't have access to police information, it was a long time before we really understood what had happened, who'd been shot, who was alive, who wasn't. Rumors were flying. Police were tight-lipped. Uh, there were maybe 50 reporters uh, there scrambling around, trying to get information until it was announced that um, Supervisor Feinstein would come out and make an official announcement. She was the president of the Board of Supervisors, uh, and she came out at the top of the rotunda stairs with uh, Chief Gain next to her. Uh, and she had this look of ghastly shock in her face that I hadn't seen. And I had been the City Hall reporter for a couple of years. I, I knew her fairly well. I knew George Moscone fairly well. Uh, but this was going to be the moment where we actually were going to get some official uh, information. She looked totally incapable of... You know, almost like a deer, in the old classic deer in the headlights. And there were, as I said, there were 30 or 40 of us standing around at the top of the rotunda. Um, and I was probably among the taller of the reporters that were there. And she didn't say anything for, for a few moments. And like she was trying to gather herself. Um, but I sensed that she was looking at me directly. And I suppose anybody in a group looking at one person might have that sense that that they're looking at you. But um, she finally began to speak and make the announcement. And so many of you might have seen the video of, you know, it's my duty to announce that George Moscone Harvey Melk have been shot and killed. The suspect is Dan White. She turns around and walks back into the supervisor's offices. And it was a year later when somebody else went to interview her about her feelings a year later. And, you know, she had become mayor, obviously, because of this. And recounting that day, and she, she told this reporter, she said, uh, I couldn't speak for a long time until I focused on Duffy. I looked right in his eyes because the only way I could gather myself to say what I had to say was to find, to find a familiar face and those blue eyes. And, and I was then able to uh, say what I had to say. And again, this shocked me completely, even though I thought maybe at the moment, she was looking at me, but th she never gave an indication of that verbally. And I never asked her about it. And she never said anything about it for a year. And I've seen her several times since then. And she says, oh, yes, that's exactly what I was doing. So well, now you've all been staring in his eyes. <laughs>
for, for way over an hour, but, uh, but we really couldn't cut that one short. So um, first of all, thank you very much both for coming, for working together on the book. And the book is available uh, in the lobby. And thank everyone for coming. And so ends another event at the Commonwealth Club. Uh, we've just passed our 120th uh, anniversary uh, a couple of days ago. So this is now our 121st year. Thank you. You've been listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Stitcher. If you like what you've heard, please consider supporting our work and help us bring 500 programs a year to listeners like you. Go to commonwealthclub.org donate. Think your way around the world with our travel programs to exciting domestic and international destinations. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live at our events. Thank you for listening and for your support. Thank you.